it's this. So, yeah. Uh, some reason it's not. I'm gonna just restart my my presentation. See if that helps. There we go. All right. We'll begin reading in Hebrews chapter one, and we're gonna go down to verse three here. It says, "God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets." has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's just pray again. God, we are so grateful for your word and grateful that we can have it in our language, in our heart language. And Lord, what an opportunity this morning just to open it up and to learn more about Jesus Christ. So we pray to that end and we want to thank you again for all you're doing and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. We ended here last time looking at these opening verses to the book of Hebrews and as I just sort of by way of introduction and that's all online if you want to go and pick it up from last week if you weren't here or didn't listen to that um, but it's important as we go through this I understand this this letter as it's often it's called an epistle was written to the Hebrew people and and some who were in danger of going back to things that could never save and the writer here presents Jesus Christ as better He's better than the Old Covenant. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. He's better than the angels. We're going to talk about that this morning. He's a better Savior, and he's obviously the superior Savior. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Last time we ended in this final part of verse 3, where it says, uh, um, and it says, Upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I wanted, by way of just connecting today's message as well with what we ended with last week, I didn't talk much about that aspect of the fact that Jesus today, the Son, is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. I think last week we talked about it that when you sit, it indicates that you're at rest. And the finished work of Christ was accomplished. That's why it says he purged our sins. And that is done. Past tense. Never needs to be purged again or paid for again. And we only need receive that gift of salvation by faith. And trust in the finished work of Christ. Very important. And uh, it, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I wanted to say this. That today Christ is seated at the right hand. That's the place of honor in ancient times and even to this day the right is considered a place of honor and uh and by tradition that's been passed on i really think it comes from what god called the right hand and he did that because it appears that way in scripture as well that doesn't mean if you're left-handed you're in trouble or you're not or they used to call that because in latin sinister i think is the term or whatever uh and when you when you think about that um it's the idea of, of to the right is the place of honor and Jesus is seated in the place of honor among the Trinity not because he's more or less important uh, than the Father or the Holy Spirit but rather because he's the one the Son is the one who went and paid for our salvation with his very life and because of that 
He is seated today at the majesty on high. In the Old Testament, we find some things that indicate um, the, what the right hand is about. And you'll find that the right, at the right hand of God is a very powerful place. In the book of Exodus, second book of your Bible, um, you find it says, Your right hand, O Lord. And by the way, the word Lord there is the covenant name for God. It is the same one at Exodus 3 who revealed himself in the burning bush experience with Moses, revealed to Moses his name. And it is Yahweh, Lord. Anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, that's the underlying name for God, Yahweh. And it has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. You come to the book of Hebrews, and it's attributed to the Son. And thus, I again indicate we find the deity of Christ on display here in that. In Psalm 16, verse 11, you have the right hand as a place of permanent pleasure. It says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our deepest seated pleasures are not the pleasures we experience in this world although there are many pleasures we can experience in this world and 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 that's not a bad thing you know god has done has given us many things for our pleasure but ultimately our deepest seated pleasures are only found in him and it says here at his right hand that's in christ in the book of philippians we are told that our joy is found in jesus christ that's the theme of the book of philippians In Psalm 48, verse 10, look what it says here. It says, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. It is at the right hand of God that you find uh, righteousness and you find perfect righteousness. Here on earth, among us, our people here, you'll never find perfect righteousness except uh, in heaven when we stand before him made perfectly righteous. We are declared righteous. If you trust Jesus by faith, Romans 5 says you've been declared righteous or justified is the biblical word. And that justification, that declaration of righteousness is based on his righteousness. Isn't that good? And you can have that option. At the right hand is also a place of fellowship. And we see that indicated in Galatians 2 and verse 9 where Paul writes and when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that had been given to me that's Paul they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised and that was part of the aspect of God's plan of to the Jew first and also to the Greek and also to the Gentiles and aren't you glad that that right hand of fellowship is extended between Jews and Gentiles because of Jesus Christ, who, according to the book of Ephesians, took down the middle wall of partition. And that we are brothers in Christ, now called Christians. And the Bible says there's no distinction between male and female and bond and free, slave or free. Um, Or you could add rich or poor or different ethnicities. You could throw out there, you know, a darker skinned person and a lighter skinned person. There's no differences in Christ. We have the same standing before God. And he offers us that wonderful right hand of fellowship. 
Well, last week we ended with that, and that was the demonstration of his superiority. And I want to look at the last part of this uh, chapter today, hopefully completing it, looking at the declaration of his superiority. Because from here, you go from God speaking in his Son, to God speaking about his Son, to God speaking for his Son. Very important. So in, about, and for. And that is the way that's really a chapter or a division of this, this uh, chapter. If you want a major outline, or you can use this one as well. Uh, the declaration of his superiority is the topic we're looking at. And we find in verse 4 of this, it says, Having become so much better than the angels, as he by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And I want to look at that because we have here the declaration of his superiority and it's that Jesus is better than the angels. Now we live in a world where uh, there's a lot of talk about spiritual things, not always good spiritual things. There's a lot of talk about angels. There's a lot of talk about evil things. Um, and, And there are certainly principalities and powers that are out there and things we aren't even aware of fully. But we do know from Scripture, the revelation of God, God's Word, that there are angels. And we know really a lot and a little. I say a little because we really don't know much about angels according to Scripture. We know that they they appear anytime God is doing something major or big. This seems like angels are involved. We find an angel announcing the birth of Christ. We, We have an angel also announcing the forerunner of Christ, right? John the Baptist. We have an angel who is there at the grave, at the empty tomb on Resurrection Day, uh, that tells them, why do you seek the dead uh, among the living, right? Or the living among the dead. I got that backwards. And then at the ascension of Christ, there were angels. And you have in the Old Testament angels that came and ministered to people like Daniel and angels that were involved in judgment in Genesis 18 and angels that were... seen in the temple like in isaiah 6 the seraphim these creatures are fiery winged creatures as isaiah describes them and and they're associated with the glory of god and the cherubim cherubim which was pictured over the mercy seat in the ark of the covenant and there was a golden cherubim that or two of them that overstretched the ark and their faces faced that and they were a pattern of things in heaven So we assume there's cherubim as well. And they all are associated with the glory of God. And then in Hebrews here, it talks about ministering spirits who are sent to those who are the heirs of salvation. I think that's the guardian angels. They are the ones ministering to heirs of salvation. That's people. So there's a lot about angels. We even know some names of angels. Uh, We know, uh, I'll ask you guys, what are some of the names of angels in Scripture? Gabriel. Yeah, we know Gabriel. What's another one? Michael. All right, another one. No, uh, Judy, I don't think it's in the Bible, but it's all right. And I I hope this doesn't uh, destroy that and get you in trouble. But the next one I was thinking of was Lucifer. Okay? So Lucifer is the only other named angel in the Bible. Um, And Lucifer was meaning enlightened one, uh, closely associated again with the glory of God. And he rebelled against God and a third of the angels of heaven fell with him. We know that they're innumerable. The Bible says they're an innumerable host. So you can't count the amount of angels that are out there. He could have called 10,000 angels at the crucifixion. 
We know that one angel, remember in the garden incident as well, but I mean even uh, one angel could have just laid out everybody on earth. They're very powerful creatures. But in all that, I say this. It says this of Jesus, the Son, having become so much better than the angels. He's better than angels. So really, as a Christian, we ought not to be talking so much about angels, although it's an interesting topic. We ought to be talking about Christ. Because he's better. He's better. He's better. Why? Because he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they and by the way that's the only name where you can be saved acts chapter 4 verse 12 says nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved amen amen he is the one who is above all and he's the preeminent one above creation he's better than all the angels in the book of Malachi, it says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. That's a term in reference to the coming Messiah. That was from Malachi's perspective. All right? And the Lord is, is identified here as one who will rise like the sun with healing in his wings. Wow. In the book of Philippians, it's this way. And it talks about both the incarnation, which is the putting on of flesh, which we'll get to, and how Jesus obtained a more excellent name, is the very fact that he was named Jesus. Yeshua, which means salvation. His name literally had you in mind, and me in mind. Because Jesus didn't need to be saved, but I did. And you did. Because we're sinners. But look what it says in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in the appearance of a man, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Aren't you glad that he's been given a name above all names in that? Wow. Well, we see God here speaking for his son in these other verses. And there are quotes from the Old Testament. Quotations here. And it goes on to verse 5 and it says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And by the way, that is a very clear verse because as the writer here identifies and then he begins to quote scripture from the Old Testament, um, which at the time of the writing of Hebrews, there was only the Old Testament in written form, right? Everything else was being compiled and uh, would be canonized later in the New Testament. But that's a good point. See, Jesus isn't just an angel, See, Gnosticism taught that in the early days of the church. It was a heretical, there were many heretical doctrines that came in with the Gnostics. And they, some of those uh, also taught that Jesus was just an angel. He was God's first angel. He's preeminent. And they would teach that. And by the way, there's people that will come to your door, knocking on your door, and they will tell you that 
they believe in Jesus Christ and that he's the Savior and, and they will say all those things and they sound very similar to what I know from Scripture. But if you corner them and you say, hey, who do you think Jesus really is? They will, if they're honest in front of you if, and ask them this, do you believe he's Michael the Archangel? And they will have to say, yes, we believe he's Michael the Archangel, but he was given a different name, a new name. And they have changed the word of God to try to justify that. Um, he's better than angels. And that's the short answer from the book of Hebrews. You don't have to know all the Greek of Hebrews chapter 1 or, or the Greek of, of uh, John chapter 1 to understand the Bible declares him to be God. And he's referring to the Son. And he never said to any angels... You are my son. The idea of a son, as found in scripture here, the one as it's identified with Jesus, is that he's the eternal son of God. And why I say eternal, he's always been the son. He had no create, he was not created. Now, when we think of having a son, or if you are a son, um, you were created through procrea- procreation between a man and a woman. I won't go any further than that. I'll let everybody else disc- you know, figure that out. But, anyways. You were created. And Jesus never had a creation. The name Jesus was given to him, but he was always the eternal son. You can't have an eternal father without an eternal son. By definition, he's God. Just by the eternal nature of the eternal son. And many other ways as well. But he goes on to say, Today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, sometimes the word begotten is... um, Used, it's an old word that is used to indicate origin. So, for instance, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 in the King James, you'll read, and so and so begot so and so and begot so and so, you know, right down through those names, right? And all the way down to Jesus. And the idea there is that it's a lineage, it's a genealogy. But that's not what this word begotten is, how it's being used here. It's in reference to his resurrection. You say, well, how do you get it out of there? I don't. I get it from the preaching of Peter and also from the Old Testament, but the preaching of Peter in the book of Acts. And uh, in Acts chapter, I'm probably jumping too far ahead here, but in Acts chapter 13 and in verse 33 and i have that reference somewhere i don't know if you see it in there but i i don't see it in my notes but let me just go back to acts chapter 13 now the context of acts 13 is uh sorry paul who is preaching not peter um and he's preaching to the jews at jerusalem after he's come back his first missionary journey here and he indicates in that chapter He tells them about Jesus, who is the Messiah. And in Acts chapter 13, if I can get there myself, and in verse 33, he writes, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. So there's the the whole thing. As it is also written in in the second psalm, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Today you are my son. I have begotten you. Or today I have begotten you. And so Peter or Paul here indicates very clearly that um, the 
resurrection is the term that's connected with begotten. And the word begotten simply means unique one. Jesus is unique, isn't he? Because he was raised from the dead. Now, he's not the only one that was ever raised from the dead. But he's the only one that raised himself from the dead. And the Bible says that. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then we read in Galatians 1, the Father raised him. And then in Romans 8, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. The triune God raised him from the dead. And that's unique. And he's the only begotten of God because of that uniqueness of his resurrection. And again, that's a quote from the Psalms. And um, it goes on and it just says, And that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. And I just go back to that saying, you see, there again, there are those that will come knocking on your door, the, the JWs, and they'll come and they will say, see, it says he was begotten. But if you go back in Scripture, the Scripture is the best commentary on itself. Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's literally God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, Right? That means equipped fully. And I'm glad because the word of God is the best illustration of that. I've got to go back to where I was. I, I don't know where I was, but um, Acts chapter 1, I guess, eventually. I'm going to read a little bit further. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. That's Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 6. And the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. Uh, And it says, is the scepter of your kingdom. And we understand, again, that, uh, and we'll talk some about these, these indications here, but we find the phrase, O God, and very clearly, as God the Father calls the Son God in that. Acts chapter 1, we see angels present here. And in Acts 1 and verse 10, it says, And while they, that's the disciples, the apostles, those that were followers of Christ, they're standing around, and they see Jesus ascend to heaven. That doesn't happen every day, does it? Big, big thing. And I I think they would have just stayed there gazing up into heaven because that's what it says. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Someday Jesus is coming back. That's the return of Christ. But the ascension and the return of Christ is declared by angels. Very important in that. And I might point out where it says in Hebrews 1.6, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now that's, again, from the Psalms. Now if you worship anything but God, that's called what? Idolatry. And it's blasphemy. Because there's only one who's worthy of our worship. Worthy. Worship means worthiness. It's an old English of something that's worthship. And if it's worth or worthy of, and it pictures prostrating ourselves before someone who is worthy of that praise. Ultimately, God is the only one who's worthy of all 
worship in that. I understand there's a lot of worship that goes on, but it's a lot of it that's idolatry. Don't worship angels. Don't worship, you know, other Christians or or saints, you know, dead saints or or alive ones or whatever else. Don't worship other things other than Christ. And I say that because that's important. Because the Old Testament declares for us only the Lord God is worthy of worship. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, we have Jesus saying that. Remember the temptation of Christ in the wilderness when Satan comes to tempt him? And Jesus goes and uses the same thing that you have at your disposal, the Word of God. And he says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. In verse 10 it says, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord, Yahweh, your God, and him only you shall serve. Now if you go to the book of Exodus in chapter 20, in the part that is often called the Ten Commandments, right? We have a copy, a shortened copy there on the back wall and outside as well. Because by the way, the law is a schoolmaster and the law reveals to us that we can't keep it. You can't keep it fully, even if you think you have. I, I can't get past the first one that says, have no other gods before me. Because sometimes I put other things ahead of God. And I'm a sinner and I know that and the law tells me I am. And I need a savior. And so the law points us to the need of a savior. But look at this. In Exodus 20 verse 3 it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You see, if angels worshipped Jesus as another angel, they would be in violation of that. If people worshipped Jesus and he wasn't God, they would be in violation of God's own law. See, he's God. And you can't get around that in Hebrews chapter 1. You just can't. But he's also God in the flesh. See, that's the incarnation, that he became a man. And it was necessary because, you see, angels, well, he didn't become an angel to save angels. There is no redemptive plan for angels. Those that fell with Lucifer are lost forever. And I, again, I, I don't know all the things that, that entails other than to say that Jesus didn't put on the nature of angels to save angels. But instead, he put on the nature of man or, or people. He came into Adam's race. And the blood pumping through his veins was human blood. And it is the blood that purges sin because the life is in the blood. But it's not just any old blood. Blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. We read that later on in the book of Hebrews. Um, All those sacraments, are not just sacraments, but the sacrifices that went on over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the lambs that were killed and all that. All that was a picture of a greater to come, a better one who would come, who would someday put an end to it all. And by himself, he purged our sins, right? 1 Timothy 3.16, and it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Look what it says. God was manifest, manifested in the flesh. The word manifested is openly shown. When Jesus came here, he didn't do it secretly. He did it right in the open. And by the way, I always am say, I, I, I kind of connect this. Man likes to do things in secret, right? In the book of John, it says, Men prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. 
Isn't it interesting, whenever evil stuff is being done, most of it's done in secret. It's either done in the dark, a lot more violent crimes and crime and petty theft and all that occur at night, um, or behind closed doors somewhere where nobody else is seeing it. But when Jesus was manifested to us, he did so openly. When he hung on a cross to die for you and me, he did so open to the, entirely to the whole world. He wasn't crucified in a basement in Baghdad or anything like that. He was crucified on a hill just outside of Jerusalem in the very center of the world, the crossroads of continents. And there he, he was crucified, stripped naked, beaten, and pinned to that cross by nails for you and me. See, God manifested, and he was in the flesh. It wasn't just an image. Islam teaches that. Islam believes in their core beliefs that Jesus was a great prophet, and Esau was his name, but Esau was a great prophet, and that when he died on a cross, it wasn't really him. It was just Judas Iscariot, who was, um, God changed it so that Jesus, or the appearance of Jesus was there, that people saw what it looked like Jesus, but it was really Judas. That's not from the Bible. But it works around the shame problem. You see, nobody wants to have a prophet that has been shamed by being stripped naked and beaten and defeated on the cross. That's what it appears anyways, defeated. So you make up a story like that. And I I say that not as in hate. I say that because that is a genuine core belief. And it's a misunderstanding, and it's not in the Bible. He was God who was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up to glory. Aren't you glad for that? Today, he says, I have begotten you. And again, you see that resurrection declared in those things. <clears throat> I want to move on there because in verse 8, remember, we was talking about that. And it says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. Again, God the Father is doing the speaking here. It says, God who at various times and in various ways, right? In the opening verse. And that member of the Godhead is God the Father who's doing the speaking because you have someone addressing the Son. And it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You know, there are four chapters in the Bible that are the focus of those chapters are on the, the um, deity of Jesus Christ. There are more than just the four, but... It's interesting that in John chapter 1, we have the, the deity of Christ on display. In Romans chapter 1, you have that. And in Colossians chapter 1, and in Hebrews chapter 1. Those are very important chapters, every one of them. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very clear. The Word was God. 
And you find out later on that word in verse 14 of John 1 is the one who put on flesh. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the son. That's Jesus. He's God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes there of himself, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Son would come forth and God would say, Thy throne, O God. Right? We just read that. And many, many others. I'm adding that, but I'm saying there's all kinds of passages that show that. Look what it says. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, that's the incarnation, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So you have the declaration from Romans chapter 1 there of the son of God. Both the Spirit of God testifying of that and God the Father testifying of that. And then in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes here, very clear, talking about Jesus Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. And the word image there is meaning the express image. He's the exact replication. He is God. It isn't like a copy or a a painting of something else, but it's Him. That's the Greek word that's used there. And then the firstborn over all creation. And that word firstborn is the preeminent one. He is Lord. The word Lord in its simplest form, Adonai in the Hebrew, uh, kurios in the Greek, means one who is, is master. And he's the Lord or firstborn over all creation. Isn't that great? But he also, not only by Burr, by his, his creative ability, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say, and nothing was made that was made or without him, right? I mean, when you look at that, he's the creator of all things. In the beginning, enarche is the Greek phrase. The very construction of creation, he's already there. Here, he's the firstborn because of his declaration of creation, but he's also over the resurrection. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's God. He's God. Again, we come to this chapter, God speaking for his son or to his son as you look at it but to the son he says your throne O god now if you like to underline things i can even do that i think with my, whoops sorry about that my little pen and you find here your throne right it showed up look at that your throne that indicates his majesty He has a throne. In the book of Revelation, it says a throne that is set in heaven. It's a throne that is permanently set. That word set is very clear. It's permanent. Here, thrones come and go. And people who sit on those thrones come and go. But in heaven, there's one that lasts forever. Oh God, oh God, that next one indicates his deity very clearly. 
And we just went through that. John chapter 1, Romans 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 here in that. And then he goes on to say, is forever and ever. May I just put a little, right? Is forever and ever. That indicates his eternality. He's forever. That's both directions. Completely in both directions. He's the one who inhabits eternity. Oh, I'm glad for that. Isaiah 57, 15 is the reference to that. He inhabits eternity. And then it goes on and it says this. A scepter of righteousness. See, a scepter of righteousness indicates his authority. He will rule with a rod of iron. He will dash his enemies to pieces. He rules for all eternity. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And by the way, the word righteousness there, as it's indicated, right, indicates what kind of kingdom it's like. It's pure. It's clean. No corruption. See, I would just say this. There's never been an earthly kingdom or dynasty or elected official or whatever where there isn't some measure of corruption somewhere. So I'm sure there's some that really attempted not to be corrupt, but there's always some measure of corruption. And it doesn't seem like it's getting any better, does it? See, there's only one kingdom where it'll be right 100% all the time. No sin. That's the kind of kingdom he has. It's a pure one. He goes on to say, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That's again his purity. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than his companions. And again we see the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's superior. And that oil of gladness is just that when ancient, in ancient times when kings were um, brought into power, they were often anointed with oil or precious smelling oils of perfumes and other things to indicate an anointing. Here, this anointing isn't by man, but by God. And it is a, a kingdom that will be superior in every single way. And again, he's quoting, if you want the psalm, from Psalm 45, verses 6 to 8. And there it's attributed to the Lord. And again, here it's attributed to the Son, specifically. Holy Spirit breathed out his word through the pen of David, and later would breathe out his word through this author of the book of Hebrews, which I think is Paul, but maybe not. Who knows? But it's God who's doing the speaking, ultimately, right? And we see that. We see his creative ability. Look what he goes on to say. And you, Lord, so there's that capital L-O-R-D, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And again, that shows that it is the Lord and the Son specifically who is involved in creation, in laying out the foundations of the earth. In the beginning, as John says in chapter 1, en arche, in the very founding of things, he's there and he's doing it. And then he goes on to say this, he says, they will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will 
be changed, but you are the same and your years will fail not. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who, are, who will inherit salvation? You see, he's better than the angels. He's better than creation itself. See, creation is going to someday be folded up like a garment. I know the, you know, the, the you know, radical environmentalists are saying that now. Like it's, going to, it's all going. It was supposed to have already been gone by now. But it's still out there. And we still have snow. But even if it changed entirely, and all of a sudden we're in totally different weather patterns and all that, I just tell you, this is going to get worse. You see, because we have this thing in the sky called the sun. And you know what they say about the sun? That every single second that that sun burns, it loses 4,200,000 tons of mass. Mostly in the form of hydrogen. And as that is hydrogen helium mix or whatever that it's converted to make fusion which is what goes on in the sun to keep it burning that's a lot now just so you're not too scared about that right now the sun takes up 99.8 percent of the mass of our entire solar system its surface by the way is at about a temperature of 100 uh, excuse me 10,000 degrees fahrenheit at the core of it it's somewhere around 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. A lot of energy coming off the sun. As you know, it's 93 million miles from Earth. It would take 1.3 million Earths to fill it. So it's not a little thing. The sun is there. And I have some bad news. Because they estimate in about 5.5 billion years, the sun is going to extinguish itself. You better get ready. Listen, even if you could live 5.5 billion years on this earth, wow. Someday this earth and the sun and everything in this cosmos is going to be folded up like a garment. But he remains. He's better than anything. And don't you forget that? And you can know him. He entered into this creation to save us from our sins. And that's why I say you can get ready. Because you need to be ready for the kingdom that never ends. And the place called heaven, which never ends. There is a place of fire that never ends too. And that's called hell. And God doesn't want anybody to go there. He's made a way out. But if you don't choose that way, that's your destiny. That's where you're headed. It's that simple. And the Bible declares who he is and what he's like. And I just hope that you walk away here from today knowing he's better. He's better. And knowing him. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for what has been revealed to us in scripture. And, and again, God, you're just better. You've been given a name above all names. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray we wouldn't put other things ahead of you and worship lesser things which cannot bring joy and which cannot save, but worship God. Help us to be such a people, Lord, who live in the light of that and live in the light of eternity 
as we go about our daily business here and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.